Welcome to episode 119 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Alice, Michelle, Eric, and Finn. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Alice, Michelle, Eric, and Finn, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Do you worry a lot? Is it hard to get your mind off the terrible things that might happen? Or maybe your mind's just obsessing on the stuff that's wrong in your life today. Today we're going to talk about worry. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at the recovery show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of worry. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Pick what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'll be your host today. And joining me is co-host Eric. How are you doing today, Eric? Uh, I'm doing great, Spencer. Uh, Greetings from Greenwich, Connecticut. All right, thank you. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion of the topic, worry. Following a short break, we'll talk about our lives in recovery, about how we practice these principles in all our affairs. We'll follow that with your email or voice contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing. I wanted to start with a reading from Hope for Today. This is uh, one of our daily readers, and this is on page 98, which is April 7th. For me, the priceless gift of Al-Anon has been freedom from worry. I've come to believe that my higher power is managing my life and that everything occurs for a reason. At any given moment, I am the sum total of all that has gone before, both painful and pleasurable, so everything I've experienced has value. When I surrendered myself to God's care in step three, I also surrendered the notion that things would go my way. It took me a long time to come to terms with this, but I did it by slowly turning situations over and by trusting my higher power with the outcomes. Now I can look back and see how everything fit together. Certain events had to occur before changes could be made. As a result, my life eventually improved beyond my wildest dreams. If the situation had gone my way, I would not be enjoying the things that bring me pleasure today. Improved relationships, a better job, and more self-esteem. The list continues. Today, it doesn't take me as long to let go and let God, because now I know a shortcut. I can go straight to my higher power in prayer and meditation and bypass the worrying. He's aware and waiting for me to ask for help. He helps me to sort my worries about the past and future from the realities of today, which breaks my concerns down to manageable size. Then I apply the serenity prayer by changing the things I can and letting go of the rest. Today, I can live serenely in the present, knowing my higher power is solving my problems and concerns in his perfect time. And uh, the thought for today from this reading is, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives me something to do, but it gets me nowhere. And I thought we might open by maybe recalling um, a time in the past when uh, we were worrying about something uh, you know, talk a little bit about maybe what the situation was, how how our worrying um, affected our lives, keep us maybe from getting things done, uh, whatever, uh, lots of possibilities there. And uh, and did worrying help actually resolve the problem? Uh, I might ask you to open with that, Eric. The time before program when I was worrying uh, was pretty much all the time. 
I would say that qualified as a 24 seven activity. Um, you know, this was probably two years before program when my qualifier was, uh, it was a daily, a daily event that, uh, the cycle would continue that I'd go to work. I'd come home even before I came home. Always worried about what I would be walking into, whether she'd been drinking, what crisis would come, uh, what I would do, scared for the children's safety, uh, you name it. It was, uh, it, I, I had no relief. It was a full-time, a full-time job to worry. How it affected my life was my worry, uh, you know, before program would cascade. And by that, I mean, escalate. Worry turned to fear, turned to uh, dread, turned to panic. You know, I would get panic attacks, not sleep. Uh, if I did sleep, it would be, you know, I'd pass out from fear, uh, from, from sheer, um, exhaustion. And I would wake, uh, in the middle of the night and basically have panic attacks, you know, had to see a doctor, uh, got medication for it, which was a very, very short term fix. Um, and to resolve anything from worry, no, actually it made things worse because it took me out of the moment. And took me away from action and then the ability to do anything. I mean, I did take action during those times, but it was drastic. Uh, by waking the children and leaving the house in the middle of the night, uh, extreme actions. Um, I was in a, a meeting yesterday and chose this topic to take a straw poll of uh, the members at the meeting, the lens group, mm-hmm. that I started a few years ago. and. I heard someone say pretty much, you know, what we're talking about is before program that worry was very, very prevalent in their lives. And in fact, someone came up with this and I loved it. I loved his description. Uh, He said, in fact, um, he used to think that if he didn't worry as much as he did, that something even worse than he was worrying about, worse than what he was worrying about would happen. I can relate to that feeling, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if he stopped worrying, something even worse was going to happen. So he'd worry as sort of a solution, which uh, I've clearly come to believe is is not at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this this question myself, and and certainly the situation with uh, my loved one was uh, the prime source of obsessive worry for a long time. That uh, and. Similar, I, I don't think I got all the way to panic attacks, but I definitely had the can't sleep. And when I could get to sleep, then if I woke up in the middle of the night, I could spend an hour or longer, sometimes till dawn, just lying there thinking about what was happening, about what might happen, about what had happened about my inability to do anything about it and just not able to, not able to let go of that, those thoughts, those, those worries that somehow things were going to continue to get worse and worse and worse than that. Um, and I've, I've heard other people in, in meetings talk about uh, this, uh, what a friend of mine calls awfulizing that at three in the morning, 
where where my mind would go would be the most the most terrible outcome that I could foresee, uh, which might be us ending up homeless, in debt, living in our car, something like that, uh, and or I remember one time. I went outside in the evening and discovered that she had left the water running, uh, the hose in the backyard, and it was making a big puddle, and I was just, I, of course, took that to the final extreme where it kept running and running and nobody noticed, and it, it came in and flooded our basement or something. I don't know. Just that was, it was a sign it was an outward sign of our our the unmanageability of my life that here was this water that was just running and and then I could take that and and take that into my middle of the night uh, worry session and magnify it and magnify it and I don't recall ever really figuring anything out during during these times I don't recall anything productive coming out of it. It just was something I somehow couldn't stop doing. And uh, certainly that carried over into my daily life. I mean, certainly the lack of sleep, if nothing else, carried over. Uh, I found uh, my stomach was not, was not comfortable, was not happy. A lot of churning and probably acid and all that going on down there. And it just, it it sort of tied up my whole life. Even when I wasn't actively worrying, it was still there in the background. And I could worry about the water running in the backyard. I could worry about money. I could worry about uh, her getting in a in a car accident um, while she was driving after drinking. I mean, it just on and on and on. There were all these things to worry about, none of which I could necessarily do anything about. So I thought it might be helpful also then to sort of move forward and think about uh, a more recent time where maybe something was was going wrong and where our past pattern of worry could have come into effect and, and to reflect on maybe how it was different this time. What has changed for me and significantly is that my worry no longer, as the word that keeps coming to mind, is my worry no longer cascades, which means, you know, uh, feeds on itself and becomes worse and worse and worse. That cascade effect, I mean, I've heard it referred to, my my daughter suffers from migraines for years, Mm -hmm. and we've tried everything, um, two different neurologists and all kinds of things, and she has some neurological potential potential cause for these. But what they refer to it as, you know, is in order to prevent a headache from becoming a migraine, it's to notice the triggers and do something before they quote-unquote cascade, mm-hmm. turning in on themselves and, and exploding, exponentially increasing to the point where it's a migraine, which is debilitating. And I, I think there's a good analogy there to worry yeah. by recognizing it before it takes complete control and starts feeding on itself is the moment we have in time to do something about it. 
what's different for me now is that I notice when worry is starting and I do something. I try at least. Uh, mm-hmm. And it can be anything as simple as just going outside. You know, just get up and move, pick up a phone, do a reading, meditate, or pray. Tends more often than not to prevent it from cascading into a full blown worry attack, if not a panic attack. And then uh, it doesn't that doesn't control me for the rest of the day or night or sometimes even longer and become an obsessive worrying. Uh, so I think what's different now is that I notice it and I try to do something about it. Thanks. I'm trying to pull up a couple of sort of specific uh, things recently in my life. And I think one of them, my, uh, my daughter, as I've, I think I've, I've mentioned before is she is living independently. Uh, she had to recently leave the, the, the first sort of post, the first post-college job that she had because the work environment was not conducive to her uh, living, uh, living a, a life, really. Um, the work environment was very hostile. And in doing so, she's now in a, in a much, uh, much better work environment, but she did have to take a cut in pay. And she also, around that same time, uh, maybe I think after she started the, the second job, her car just stopped. Uh, it it needed repairs that were more expensive than what she had paid for the car in the first place. It was an old car. She didn't pay a whole lot for it, but still. And so she had to find a new car. She had to get a loan to buy a new car, which is now another expense. And having bought the new car, her insurance went up and... You know, I love my daughter. I want to support her and protect her, but she is uh, an independent adult. She's 24, and I know that I can't... It's not my role, it's not my job to, to prop her up. But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't worry about, is she going to have enough money? Is she going to have enough money to eat? <laughs> uh, which... From from listening to her, uh, she's been spending a lot of time with her boyfriend, and apparently he's been paying for a lot of food, and so that she can meet her her fixed obligations, which include student loans and a car payment and rent and so on. So I could I, that could take me into that cascade of worry, like how is she going to do? How is she going to live? Is she going to have enough money? Is she going to have to go into debt? Is she going to use her credit card, et cetera, to 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 buy things that she needs but can't afford and so on and so forth and just blah, 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 blah. I could still go there. I'm able now with over a decade of practice, I guess, to to say that is not mine and that if she really needs help, she will come and ask for it. And I don't have to manufacture problems. That I can I can let go of the things that haven't happened. I can stop. And this is this is a phrase that I've used before and, and um, I love it. I can stop living in the wreckage of the future because the future may not be wrecked. The future may be just fine. The future is definitely not going to be what I think it's going to be. I know that. Uh, and spending time living in the unmanageability that hasn't happened yet, all it does is those things we were talking about. It keeps me awake. It turns my stomach. It prevents me from focusing on the things that I 
actually can do something about. So what I can do in this situation is I can be there for her if she needs something. Maybe I can take her out to dinner occasionally or something. If uh, and and or when we go out, I can pay for her her meal because I know that I've got more money than she does. Uh, and but it, the rest of it's out of my control, and I I have to trust that if she really needs help, she will ask for it. And so far, she's managing it, and that you know that's a wonderful thing. And why should I be worrying about whether she's going to manage it or not when the evidence is that she is managing it? Another thing that that I have done with the wake up in the middle of the night worry sort of thing, uh, wake up in the middle of the night worrying about money. That's my most common one uh, because. We're still pulling ourselves out of the debt hole we got ourselves into over the decades of well, the drinking and the not paying attention and the the stuff that I did when I was I felt justified in spending money because she was spending all this money on booze, so I should spend money on things that I liked, um, you know, which is not exactly the best attitude. Anyway, so we're digging ourselves out of debt, and occasionally, it, occasionally we bump up against the edge of that, and and so I can wake up in the middle of the night and I could be obsessing about. What's going to happen? Uh, are we going to have enough money to uh, you know, pay the property taxes that are due at the end of this month, for example? And what one of the things that somebody said in a meeting, and I just picked it up, and I thought, this is true. Uh, and sometimes it takes somebody else saying it for me to see that it's true, but they said, I tell myself that things have been okay so far, that I have been okay so far. And that I can, I will continue to be okay. Whatever happens, I will be okay. Because that's what the evidence says. And when I'm in this starting into the, the descending spiral of worry, I can tell myself that, that, that I will be okay. Things may be difficult, but I have the tools, I have the ability to get through. And, and because I can look at the past and see that that has happened. And that, that echoes the, the reading for me of the person talking about looking back at past experiences and seeing how they brought that person to where they are now. And I can look back at my past experiences and say, they brought me to where I am now. And some of those were painful. Some of those maybe were things that certainly I didn't want to go through at the time. But I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be living the life that I am. It's it's the you know gratitude for my alcoholic that, that brought me to Al-Anon that people express that uh, I I actually don't really like the person that I was and I do like the person that I am and I would not be here without those experiences that brought me here and so I will be okay and that was a very long share. <laughs> You know, I didn't mean to dodge your original question, which was think about something specific recently that you could have worried about. And what I shared about was kind of, you know, what I do about it mm-hmm. now versus the past. But what occurred to me is, you know, throw a dart. I mean, there's something every couple hours I can worry about on every day. And to be specific, I was worried about this podcast two hours ago. Worry is always in just under the surface and in the background. And the point is to not let it come out and grab us by the throat and take over. So I didn't mean to be evasive about a recent example of when I could have worried because I could worry right now about what's going to happen the rest of today instead of choosing not to. We got a couple of uh, 
voicemails. Uh, I want to play one from Tamlin, and then uh, we'll see what that sparks for us. Good morning, Spencer. This is Tamlin. I've been meaning to call you for a long time. I want to thank you so much for the show. It's just been fabulous. Every morning I walk to work, and on the way, the first half of my walk is a walking meditation where I'm really in contact with my higher power. In the second half, I hook up and I listen to your show. And it's just really, it brings me a lot of peace. It's a beautiful start to the day. And it gives me a meeting every morning that I'm going to. I super appreciate it. It's just added a really big quality of life element for me. Um, wanted to say about obsessive behavior. When I first came to the program, I was making lists. That was how I would obsess. I would make list after list of all the things I had to do, all the house improvements I was going to do, and all the self-improvement I was going to do, and every once in a while a new budget, and all the best ways I was going to spend money. In some ways, it was a real kind of striving for perfectionism in a fantasy kind of way. And one of the things that was my one of my recovery things was to make one list. And when it was on paper, I only made the list in pencil, and I only got to make it once. And then if I did something, I erased it off the list, and then it was done. And that was really great because I was doing a lot of walking back then, and it allowed me more to be in the moment when I'm walking and to really enjoy what's around me and not constantly have this list building in my mind, which I think also was a way um, that I interpreted as being I was not perfect, I was not good enough. I still always had all these things to do. I hadn't ever achieved the ultimate with no list to do. So that's a thought about obsessive thinking um, and uh, a tool that really helped me with it. I like what she had to say about about making lists. Um, I don't. I'm, I don't. Th- I'm trying to think. Did I? Did I? Phys- you know, really make lists? I'm sure I thought about like lists of things to do. And what I one of the things that I got from from there was this idea of sort of making mental lists, but not writing them down. And I I can totally see myself doing that because the thing about a mental list is it kind of fades, and then I'm never sure like. Did I have the whole list? Did I miss something? Is something? Do I need to put something more on? And I have I can keep reiterating over the list, uh, and and so the notion of making one list and writing it down. I'm not a list person, but uh, I can connect with sort of the feeling there, the difference between making it concrete and keeping it in my head where I can worry over it. Uh, if I make something concrete, then I can let go of let go of it. Uh, this happens. In a very simple example, I keep my calendar, I keep a combined calendar of my personal activities and what's going on at work. They're actually two separate calendars, but they come together on my phone. And so I can put something on my calendar and then I don't have to think about when is it because I can look at my calendar and see when it's going to be. If I have a dentist appointment in three months, I put it on the calendar and then I can let go of it because I know that I'll get a reminder when it's actually time to go or I can look ahead and say, oh, yes, my dentist appointment is next week. Okay, cool. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely part of the 
process of worrying is just creating an endless list in your head. Um, and it just circles back on itself and becomes larger in scope and nature and immediacy and to the point where, again, it cascades. And it just is occurring to me as we were talking. And it wasn't until very recently that I got a God box, you know, made a little pin and a slit in the top. And it seems to me I hadn't thought of it before just now. That would be a great place to stuff some of my words. Yeah. Write them down and stick them in the box and try to see if they can be removed at least for the moment so as not to grow in, in nature and ugliness until they consume me. Uh, that might be a nice little tool I hadn't thought of to use. I'm glad you brought that up because that is a tool that uh, a lot of people do use, I think, to, to, to let go of things. Give it to God and let go of it. And, uh, and there's a physical representation there, especially writing it down and putting it in the box. Or uh, I know that uh, a friend of mine, when they finished doing their first, well, maybe not their first, but when they finished doing a fifth step, they took the paper on which they had written all of their shortcomings to share you know, to share with their uh, sponsor. They took that and they burned it. And that was an, a, a way of physically letting go of those things. So those are, those are also great tools, and I'm glad that uh, you reminded us of it. We got an uh, email share from Bruce about worry, and do you want to read that? Uh, sure. Um, let me locate it. Yeah, Bruce is a close friend of mine uh, here in Connecticut, and um, he was originally going to join us on the podcast for a three-way uh, conversation, but um, as last week's episode said, uh, by phone last term, <laughs> this came down with uh, a toothache and um, decided instead to uh, put his share into an email, so here it goes. First, he starts by saying the definition of worry, uh, to think about problems or fears. To feel or show fear and concern because you think that something bad has happened or could happen. And then to make anxious, to make someone anxious or upset, to cause someone to worry. So his fear in the beginning, what? Me worry? That wasn't possible. I was the sane and dependable one. My partner was the crazy, out-of-control one with all of the worry for 20 people. Worry was for losers, people who couldn't control themselves, either mentally or physically. Worry was for those people who weren't up to the job of life, those who couldn't take it. That's how it felt to me. That's what I experienced living with the disease of alcoholism. Nothing but constant worry about everything from them. It only stopped when they got so drunk they fell asleep. Their worry seemed to be based on people, who was doing what to whom and why, and how to control them and stop it. But as to me, my pretending that I wasn't concerned was only the outward appearance. The facade I needed to show the world to balance the craziness of my living with the disease of alcoholism. I was concerned and worried about my alcoholic and how her life and mine were out of control. Do you know that worry is contagious? I found the longer the worried lifestyle continued, the more anxious I became. I caught the disease of worry. I walked on eggshells. Who knew what would set off the alcoholic rage and anger? I lived in constant fear, worry, of what was happening, what catastrophe was going to happen next. Turns out, I was just as crazy on the inside. But no way was I going to let you know about it, that I was worried too. I had to be the strong, rational front man 
for the eccentricities and craziness of my partner. It was a yin-yang kind of thing. I thought we balanced and that I could live life that way, that I could save her, make her whole, make us whole. My worry kept me active in a frenetic, busy way, never stopping long enough to appreciate, enjoy, participate in, or otherwise be in the present. It was all worry about taking care of the money, my job, the cars, the house, the yard, cleaning, cooking, the kids, and she was too drunk or tired to put them to bed. It was a constant feeling of being constant, constantly responsible and overwhelmed and exhausted and beaten up and depressed and anxious and nervous. Oh, did I mention angry? Yep, that too. So that was then, way before recovery came into my life. That's how it looked to me. When I finally got into the rooms, I had nothing, having been through a divorce that I didn't want. I was scared and alone and starting over. My job and my family of origin were all that I had. They weren't enough. I found myself floundering around, making the same mistakes again and again, over and over, repeating the same behaviors, expecting different results. Was I worried? You bet. But in a different way. Now I was worried about me, how to live my life, how to live a better life, a different life, a life in the present moment. Worry never got me anywhere. All the mental gyrations and physical activity never moved me anywhere close to the present. It was all in the past or the future. Worry was about projecting what might happen or what did happen. And was that okay? All that walking around alcoholism on tiptoes. What a tremendous amount of effort went into that behavior, not to mention silicosis. I used to think all that worry and behavior was wasted effort. Today, I think of it as preparation. It was the path that led me here to recovery, the understanding that worry isn't valuable, but that a healthy respect for the unknown is valuable. Worry worked in the dark shadows of my mind. Fear is a flag, a warning that I am out of adjustment. I can learn from my fear. I heard it said that if I'm afraid, it's important. It's important to recognize that I'm afraid. That's okay to say it and name it and bring it out into the light. Today, I work towards the light and gift of this knowledge that has been provided me in the process of recovery in the rooms filled with like-minded people who share freely their experience, strength, and hope in the literature, in the steps, and service to others. What a marvelous way to live. Bruce G. Thank you, Bruce, for, for sharing that with us, uh, despite your pain. And uh, I wish you a speedy recovery uh, from, uh, I hate dental problems. Just, yeah. uh, but uh, I saw but they in, heal faster than, than the others, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once, once you get the attention. <laughs> yeah. Bruce, I think it was Bruce that was the one who told me, uh, one of the first persons that said to me, I wish you a slow recovery. I didn't think I'd ever forgive him for that. <laughs> <laughs> I want it now. Yeah. He, he talks here. He says, I found myself floundering around making the same mistakes again and again over and over repeating the same behaviors and expecting different results and when i heard that i thought back that was a thing for me that was part of of the whole worry process was well this thing that i tried it didn't work last time but maybe if i do it again maybe if i do it just a little bit differently uh, it'll work this time 
Or maybe over and over and over and over again. Maybe, maybe if I work. do it enough, it'll work. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Maybe 10 times isn't enough. 20, that'll do. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, I totally, totally, totally connect to that that feeling. Yeah. Uh, that was definitely yeah. there. I have heard this slogan, maybe you've heard it too, worry is not preparation. I want to think about that for a little bit, reflect on that, because when we're in a situation, when we have a problem, there may be something we can do about it. And people have expressed this this question of, well, if I just let go of everything, nothing will get done. How do we know when we're maybe thinking constructively about how to solve something versus worrying about it. you have any thoughts about that? Interesting. I wrote in the margin along that, you know, worry is not preparation. I asked someone in um, the other program who I respect, who has many years of recovery in very similar kind of situation uh, as me. And his response was um, the kind of what is worry and how he thinks of it was worry does not relieve tomorrow of its sorrow only today of its strength. Hmm. And yeah, I think that was a great summary of how he thinks of it. And, you know, worry is not preparation. Is, it seems so obvious, but it doesn't seem obvious at the time when you're in worry. And it goes back to someone's share that, you know, if I don't worry, something even worse is going to happen. Almost as if worry is the solution. But yeah. for me, it's just, it's, it's treading water. It's spinning in a circle and going nowhere. You might put a lot of miles on your feet going in a circle, but you didn't move ahead one inch. So, yeah, I, I, I 100% buy into the worry is not preparation, but it took me a while to understand that. And the, the flip side of that and f- where we get to this question of, well, I have to, I have to do something, uh, maybe, in if we turn that phrase around and say preparation is not worry, that when there are steps I can take to better a situation, then I should, I should take those steps. And that's, you know, it's the second part of the serenity prayer, the courage to change the things I can. But then we get back to the first one, the serenity to accept the things I cannot. And that, I think that was also in the reading that I opened with that, if there's something I can do that is going to make the situation better for real, not not in my imagination, uh, then that is something that I can do, and I should do it. But once I've done it, once I've done the things that I can do, then it's time for me to let go of the rest and trust that that the situation will work out. And I come back to the money thing. Uh, you know, if I have if I have bills that need to be paid, well, I should pay them. Uh, or I should pay as much of them as I can. I'm thinking particularly about credit card bills. I'd love to write a huge check and just pay them all off, but I don't have that money. But I need to keep, I need to keep on paying uh, something, you know, more than the monthly minimum, preferably, because that gets me almost nowhere. Uh, but I need, to, I need to do something. And in the past, and reflecting back, uh, I would live in this fear of being too far in debt and that that fear would actually prevent me from doing some of the things that I needed to do, like paying the bill on time, which of course did not have any kind of positive effect because then we would get 
a penalty and maybe they would raise the interest rate so we'd owe more. It just was horrible. It was totally nonproductive, but that was where my fear took me by effectively paralyzing me from actually taking action. Uh, and that was something that it took some time in the program. It took, it took that inventory process uh, that we have uh, in steps four and five to recognize and to start to work through the fear. And I, I worked an, an inventory explicitly on fear uh, when I found myself still being stuck by my fear, by my worry. You know, I now have a tool. I now have a tool that I can use to look at it, to bring it into the light, and to start to and 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 then I have a tool in steps six and seven to ask my higher power for help with that. And when I did that, I got help, and the fear lessened, and I was more able to to do the things I needed to do uh, to keep my life financially sane. And that's. That's preparation. But then once I've done the preparation, I also work to to let go of, of the further worry. Like, well, I paid some of the bill, but it's still huge. Well, next month I'll pay some more. And eventually uh, eventually it will it will be gone. If I keep working at it, if I keep with my preparation and the and and let go of the unproductive worry that just makes the rest of my life miserable. How about you? you have any thoughts, uh, maybe a situation where you found yourself doing some preparation and then you had to let go of the rest? Absolutely. And while you were talking, the odd phrase came to mind, which is the first part of the two ideas, worry is not preparation. The you know, age-old thought came to mind, which is paralysis by analysis. Mm. And um, it seems when I'm in, when I used to be in the, state of worry that escalated into panic or uh, manifested itself in other unhealthy results, such as lack of sleep or bad health, uh, not taking care of myself. It was because I was in the, in this paralysis, uh, just, just thinking about the problem, thinking I could think it away. That's not preparation. That's again, that's spinning, spinning and spinning and going nowhere. And, and I, I will give you actually a specific example too or so of this idea that you know I have again like a lot of us financial concerns. Some are looming, some are really large, and it, a lot of it came from you know um, the, the the past wreckage of living through uh, a divorce and children in need of uh, support, emotional support, and otherwise, and and that's all. Very, very costly. And, but a little thing like I have a motorcycle, um, which I got kind of before my marriage started to fall apart. Uh, somebody suggested that, uh, my, uh, my motorcycle could be therapeutic for me to get out, make a ride by myself. And it has been, but now I'm a single father and I think it's time to sell it and get some money I could use for other purposes. You know, I made a sign for it. I put it on the windshield of the motorcycle, but there'll be sometimes weeks when it sits into my driveway. Mm-hmm. So no one can see the sign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's preparation, but just, just you fail to take the last step, put it out on the street where people can actually see the sign. Um, and then the other thing that came to mind was, you know, a share that I'd heard you make, which is 
small things you can do to help yourself that kind of relieve a little tension, like making your lunch to take it to work instead of spending the 10 or $12 every day. Mm-hmm. And I've started doing that too. And, you know, it's just one little way to address a problem rather than just letting it escalate into catastrophic instead of thinking, you know, I can chip away at it piece by piece, one thing at a time in baby steps, and it helps. Yeah, yeah. And and what something I heard there is this wish maybe that we have to just totally solve everything right now. And I I think about that in the context of reconstructing my relationship with my wife since she has stopped drinking and which is all about me, all about my fears and um, the the ways in which I re- withdrew from the relationship while she was drinking and, and in some cases still have fears about uh, what's going to happen if I commit it completely again. Uh, and, and I just remind myself that you know, it took us decades to get to where we were, that damaged, damaged relationship. And it's okay if it takes months or years, as it has been to completely put it back together. It, it, I, the, the, the damage of years is not fixed in days, for me at least. Yeah, I think one of the items on our prep list was what is worry. And I, I found a lot of these, and a lot came, several came from my meeting yesterday. I heard some great personal shares about what they regard worry to be. So some of it is they're being very codependent. I worry about if he or she, uh, if he or she is okay, I can stop worrying. Again, a very codependent way of thinking. Yeah. Someone said, I've a co- being in a constant state of readiness, hmm. almost like a Marine, just always ready for battle. That can really provoke worry. Uh, the other person said something similar to what I'd said before. If I worry enough, I can affect the outcome or prevent something bad from happening. And this one I got out of one of our daily readers, which said, obsessive worrying raids my willingness to accept and enjoy life as it is. I really like that one. I think that's key. That yeah. When I'm worrying, yeah. I am I'm not enjoying, I'm not able to enjoy what might be happening right now. Yeah, this one also came from a different meeting, but I liked it, and I think it applies to worries. You know, uh, when God closes one door, he opens another. But living in the hall is hell. <laughs> ah, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, the in-between. Yeah. Yeah, the in-between. Right, which is a state of worry. I don't know which way to go. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to stand here and spin around in circles in the hallway yep. when there's a door that's open right ahead of me. Yep. Hey, we got <laughs> oh, another, another voicemail from Sarah. Let's play that. Hi, Spencer and Recovery Show friends. This is Sarah in California. Um, I have some thoughts on the upcoming topic of obsessive thinking. What it feels like when I'm obsessive thinking is heart racing, spinning thoughts, and spiraling out of control. And that's something I can deal with during the day because I tend to use halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, as my go-to tool, um, 
eat something to give my my body the focus, make sure that I'm I'm not obsessive thinking because I'm interacting with people. Um making sure that I'm I am as rested as I can be in whatever situation I am. Drink a cup cup of tea, go take a lay down for a couple minutes, whatever that means. But what I have problems with the obsessive thinking the most is when it's the 2 a.m. wake up or never fall asleep thinking um, because halt for me actually becomes a fundamental part of the pro- problem. I am lonely because it's 2 a.m. and I'm not going to call somebody. I become hungry because I'm, my body or I'm trying to think of some way to distract myself and it's that healthful eating that would happen then. It's, it's the chocolate binge snacking. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm tired. Um, and then I get angry at myself because I'm not sleeping. And I would love to find uh, input on obsessive thinking at 2 in the morning or really, really early morning hours when that tool can't be used. I'm trying to pull for literature, but for myself, when I start turning on the lights or looking at reading, I then become obsessive reading because that's my checkout mechanism. So that's my thought on obsessive thinking. Uh, A couple other comments on other episodes. I love the um, natural sounds, the background. At first, when the first episode had the pitter-patter of rain, it just sounded like hissing in the beginning of the episode, and I thought, oh, judgmentally, it's a bad recording. And then I listened to the episode and um, laughed at myself and really then dropped into liking and looking for the bird sounds. And so I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Um, that's my share. Have a great one. And thanks again for all of the work at The Recovery Show. It's helped me so much. Cheers. Bye. And thanks, Sarah, for, for that share. Um, the two in the morning and and... I think that leads nicely actually into one of the questions on our prep list, which is what slogans and steps help you when you find yourself worrying? Uh, one of the tools that I used uh, to help myself go to sleep is the gratitude list. Uh, I, I would, my particular form of the gratitude list that I would use going to sleep was usually the alphabetical one because it's long enough that, in fact, if I started thinking about things I was grateful for, starting with A, and then things I was grateful for, starting with B, and so on, that I have never made it to the end of the alphabet before falling back asleep. Uh, it gives me a positive place to, to focus. It gives me something to think about to keep my mind from going down those worry pathways. And... I have found that when I actually go to sleep with my mind in a positive place, um, I have better dreams than when I go to sleep with my mind in a worry place. How about you, Eric? Thoughts on what do you do at two in the morning? Yeah. <clears throat> well, these days I sleep. <laughs> but it Yay. wasn't always that way for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, that was a normal time for me to wake. And I would almost... And by the way, you did make it to the end of the alphabet because you made it to your Z's. Ah. <laughs> Sometimes I started with Z. Just so I could work backwards. Work backwards, yeah. For the challenge. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's for our future episode on, on humor and laughter. Yeah. I, I don't 
recall when I was waking, I didn't have tools at that time. When it occasionally still does happen, I'll use deep breathing as kind of my tool to slow myself down because if I feel my heart starting to increase my heart rate, uh, I know I'm headed for that cascade. Again, I think just awareness is the tool that comes to mind that I can recognize something before it envelops me and enslaves me. And so, you know, if there's a slogan, I'd say, how important is it? Because really at two in the morning, I can't do anything about it. And so let go, let God, I hear again and again, when I look up the topic, it invariably refers me to that slogan as one of our tools and turning it over a God box, you know, pushing it into uh, someone else's hands that I can't, I'm powerless at this point. Uh, So the first three steps, I think, are good places to go to at two in the morning and just turn it over and uh, make a decision that I can't do anything about this tonight, say a prayer, and yeah, I think the gratitude list, I'll try that if uh, the next night uh, presents opportunity for me to find a tool and I need it. That's a good one. I used to do the gratitude list as well in the alphabet driving to work because mornings used to be my worst time of day. Um, usually after a sleepless night. Mm-hmm. So I would run through a gratitude list and I would be let go of God just as a chant over and over and over. Just if for nothing else, just to focus on something other than my worries. Yeah. I was thinking about, um, prayer and meditation step 11 and and it's in in the reading i can go straight to my higher power in prayer and meditation and bypass the worrying it's in the reading we opened with and the problem for me there is that if i try to meditate when i'm worrying the meditation can sort of interweave with the worrying cycle and if i'm if i'm just trying to sort of let go of my thoughts, those worries might come in. And I think what helps there to be using prayer and meditation as a tool, meditation ought to be a great thing to be able to do when you're lying in bed and and not getting up, not reading, not, you know, you don't want to wake yourself up further. Uh, but I think that what I have had, what ha- is helpful for me there is to have practiced it when I'm not in a worry place to practice um, the form of meditation, the um, mindfulness meditation in particular is the one that I, I practice the most, where when a thought comes into my head, I can just sort of look at it and then let it go by. Um, I was in a, a group meditation once where we were situated near a busy road, and for whatever reason that evening the windows were open. Um, probably it was it was a nice day out and they didn't want to run the air conditioning or something. The windows were open so we could hear the traffic on the road. And one of my friends came up with this mental image of taking the thoughts that was coming into their head and putting it on one of those cars going by and then sort of watching it speed away mentally. And and I thought, wow, that is so cool. How to turn this potential distraction into something that's a part of the meditation, about a part of the, the letting go of of consciously following thoughts down a, a worry rut. Uh, so I don't know, Sarah, if that helps. Uh, hope hope you find some, some tools that do work for you. I had this last question. What would you say to someone 
who can't stop worrying about their loved one who's still drinking or drugging? Yeah, I'd say um, go to uh, the recovery show and listen to episode 119. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, it's a tough one. Just saying to somebody, stop worrying, is just about as useful as saying to somebody, stop drinking. Yeah, it doesn't work, you know. And stop acting so crazy. It's um, it's a really hard one, and that's perhaps why I kind of struggled with preparation for today, because there's no magic pill. Just like our program, there's just, you know, there might be an actual pill um, that you can take that uh, is for panic that helps, but that's not a solution. You know, that's a band aid. Uh, getting to the root of it takes time, as you mentioned. Meditation and meditation is not something that for me works unless I have practiced it because I can't just pop it, you know, pop a meditation pill. It doesn't work (laughs) that way. It has, I wish it did. The goal, I think, is for us not to self medicate with whatever, uh, but to find a self remedy that is something that took time and effort uh, to cultivate so that it is something that is useful for us that we have experience with and we know when to use it. So it's an awareness that we need help, but it's also the experience of having practiced something that does and then, and then using it. It's the three A's. Uh, we accept we have a problem and we're aware of it and we accept it and now take some action. And it helps quite a bit if the action is something we've done in the past that we know works. Yeah. Yeah. Just thinking to my own experience, uh, and finding, as you say, it takes time. I think one of the things that really helped me in, in a paradoxical sort of way was accepting the first step, accepting my powerlessness, because with that acceptance comes the understanding for me that if I'm powerless, then what can I do? Uh, if I can't directly cause my loved one to stop drinking, what can I do right now? And there may be things that I can do that I haven't thought of because I was so focused on the one unachievable goal. And for me, early in the program, the things that I could do were to spend some time focusing more on myself, uh, which at least made the family situation better. If I couldn't fix my, my loved one's drinking, I could make life better for the rest of us and maybe help make her life a little better at the same time because she's part of the family as well. When, when it was near the, the end of, of her drinking, there was a lot of fear. I had a lot of fear because I didn't know if she would ever find recovery. I didn't know if she would drink herself to sickness or death. But I could be there. Um, I could I could love her, whatever happened. And that was that was a solace. That yeah, this sucks, but I'm doing what I can, and I'm I'm living life the best I can, and. You know, a friend of mine uh, lost his lost his son to this disease, and what he 
has taken from that, what he gained from that is a story that he can carry, a story of hope of recovery um, from what might be the worst that many of us as parents can ever envision, the death of a child. The death of a child to addiction is, is um, you know, it's a horrible thing. Um, but he was, he's, he's been able to take that and, and take it as a message of recovery, a message of hope that, that life, can, life goes on and he can look at the things that his son brought into his life. Um, the, the fact that, in fact, his son brought him to his first AA meeting and he found recovery there. He can be grateful for those while he, at the same time, mourns the loss of his son. Uh, and in, in sadness, sometimes we can find gratitude and, and recovery. The other thing that I would say is, is go to meetings, uh, talk, uh, talk in meetings, talk, maybe find somebody who you can, you can talk with outside the meeting and, and talk about your fear, talk about your, your anger and resentment that is probably there at this person who's, who's, you know, ruining their own life at least apparently, and maybe um, your own. And it, because that was really helpful for me to have a place I could talk about it that I could express my, my feelings, uh, a safe place that I could do that. Um, that really helped uh, with the feelings that I was having uh, while my loved one was still drinking. So that's what I got. I appreciate that all. And uh, if, um, just to finish up a couple last thoughts, you know, we didn't touch on anxiety, um, but, you know, they're so closely coupled. Yeah. Uh, and for me, anxiety was just, absolute uh, result of obsessive worry and really and cause a lot of paralysis and something else that came up in my men's group yesterday I love uh, the thought um, which was somebody said you know he didn't put it quite this way I will because I think it's funny it's uh, basically I've told many many doctors have been to hospitals and so far I've not found one doctor willing to perform a worryectomy <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice, it's huh? Just, wouldn't it? Just go and get it taken out. Yeah. So it's not so simple. Okay. After a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. The first musical selection that I picked, and you can listen to this uh, on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 119, is the song Panic Attack by the, the band Dream Theater. I, I heard the lyrics of this and the song. It's a there. It's more or less a metal band, and it's very harsh and and sort of gloomy. Uh, I don't know which of the many, many, many divisions of metal these guys fall into, but these lyrics just really spoke to some of the feelings that that I have had when I got caught in that worry cascade. Here's some lyrics: sleep disturbed, restless mind petrified. Bouts of fear permeate all I see. Heightening nervousness threatens me. I am paralyzed. So if you want to hear the whole song, go over to the website. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. And uh, I will start here. Yesterday morning, uh, it was my Saturday morning step meeting. 
we had a newcomer at the table I was sitting at. And so we did a step one discussion as we do in that meeting when we have a newcomer. And this person uh, came in because uh, their spouse had found uh, recovery in a, in a rehab and they were still filled with fear and worry about what was going to happen. And a friend had suggested Al-Anon, and so they came to us. And I really, really connected with some of the things that this person had to say about their situation, where they were, because it so echoed where I was uh, early in my program. One of my friends said in the meeting, you know, I always, I always when I find myself at a first step table, I always hear something I need to hear. I always, always connect with, with that first step, with that powerlessness, whether it's over alcohol or something else in my life. Um, and it's so, it's so helpful for us to both remember where we came from and also to see where we've come to sometimes. And I'm trying to think about the, oh yeah, the other thing that, that happened this week to me, uh, that happened, that I caused to happen, uh, is my very first a mental health Friday, as I might call it. I talked about taking Fridays off for the summer because I am able to do that. I've been working uh, very, very continuously over the last couple of years and actually got a dispensation at the end of last year to carry extra vacation days forward into this year. So this is how I'm spending them. And so yesterday, or Friday, a couple of days ago, uh, I... Got up when I felt like getting up. I enjoyed the the quiet morning, the uh, the gentle air of the. Uh, it's been very nice weather here this this last few days, and uh, was able to enjoy that. And then in the afternoon, my wife and I went uh, into the city to the Detroit Institute of Arts to see a exhibition that's just about to close, uh, which is a exhibit about. Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo when they were in Detroit in, I think, 1932 and 33, while he was painting these amazing murals. Uh, I think they're called the Detroit Industry Murals that that fill a large. Um, what did it used to? It was it was a something some kind of court inside the the Detroit Institute of Arts, uh, and in the the main two murals he depicts the process at the Ford. Rouge River plant, where at that time they took coal and steel in one end of the plant and automobiles, finished automobiles came out the other end of the plant. And it's, if you haven't seen it, uh, you can uh, look it up on Google, go to the dia.org and, and, you know, should have a link right on the front page, I think, to the, that, um, the Rivera murals or the Detroit industry murals are just amazing. But this exhibit t- walked us through. Uh, both where where he had come from artistically and the process of creating these huge murals, which were painted in fresco, uh, and they're still there today, you know, when, uh, 80 years later, a little more than 80 years later. It was a great exhibit. We spent a couple of hours going through there uh, and also uh, learning a lot for me about Frida Kahlo, who was his wife and became an uh, influential artist in her own right uh, and that that sort of blossomed uh, during the stay in Detroit. So it was it was a great exhibit. And then we uh, we went to dinner 
at a barbecue restaurant that friends had been recommending to me for years, but I never get into the city, so uh, there was an opportunity. But another thing, a little, little bit of program there. We're standing in line to get our tickets to the exhibit, and they have these TVs up above that are telling you what the ticket prices are, and, and then it keeps flashing this message that some time slots are sold out today and talk to the you know, talk to the person about when you can get in. And, and my wife said, well, if we have to wait too long, maybe we should just go. And I just looked at her and said, you know, we took, it took us 45 minutes to get here. It's going to take us 45 minutes to get home. I think we could wait an hour or so. And as it happened, we were able to get tickets for the, like the next half hour slot. So was not, was not an issue at all, but this is, uh, how do I put this without taking her inventory? Sometimes she says things or she sees things in a, a pessimistic, I guess, outlook. Bringing it back to me, her expression of that outlook is a trigger for me. Uh, and I think that goes back just to lots of things happening in the past. But that when she did that, I had that sort of flash of anger about sort of why do you always see the the downside? Why do you always assume that it's going to be the worst? And and maybe that's part of you spot it, you got it too, because I certainly can go into that that worst case thinking of, oh, well, we drove all this way and now we're not going to get to see the exhibit and it's just going to be horrible. But I didn't let that immediate emotional reaction color my response to her. And I see that as a as a great step forward, as a great lessening of a, of a particular character defect. So how about you, Eric? How was your week? My week was good. Let's see. I, I did three face-to-face meetings this week, my home group Thursday. Um, I made some notes on that one. And actually, even going further back in the week, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I had a meeting at my daughter's school with her therapist, and I, I kind of got beat up and... Uh, you know, at the time, I was pretty resentful about it, but I used it to think really about my behavior. And you know, my daughter uh, said I wasn't validating her feelings, and uh, so I took, you know, as she was speaking, I said, uh, "At first, I think I didn't use my tools too well. I had to actually excuse myself for a minute to catch my breath. But maybe for me, that was a tool. I needed to physically detach for a minute and just compose myself. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't react." negatively any further and so then i then i took out a, my little look and and i wrote down what she was saying and uh, how i could uh listen better so i've been working on that this week and, and not judge her not promote or, or not bring up my program to her because i think that triggers her into thinking that she doesn't want to be equated with her mother uh and her her disease so that that was hard um, but it was good. But what it did lead to was a further discussion with the founder of the school she's attending, which is a sober high school. Mm-hmm. And I had a really nice conversation with him. Uh, he founded a sober high school for uh, teens in recovery at the Therapeutic Day School. And we had a few follow-up conversations. And they're going to speak again on Monday. And I might have him as a guest speaker at an event we have coming up. So that was a very good outcome. And so then it started off as a bit of a brain wreck. On Thursday, I had my whole group meeting here in Greenwich, and uh, that was actually a day or so after the meeting with my daughter, and I started my share by saying I'm very happy that it's today, (laughs) (laughs) because yesterday was not my favorite day. 
and I shared a little bit. I don't call it the exact topic, but uh, what I was writing down was, uh, you know, hearing and validating and detachment with love. I think it was about detachment and the fact that a lot of people tend to sometimes drop the second part of that slogan, which is with love. Mm-hmm. And my daughter pointed that out to me, that sometimes my detachment seems like not caring. So I have to be careful with using that tool, that it's not just cold detachment. And then uh, one of the things I wrote down were uh, from that little bookmark, which says just for today. And I love the little, it's buried within about the third or fourth paragraph. Um, but it is a great form of detachment with love, which is that I will not show anyone that my feelings are hurt today. They may be, but today I will not show it. Hmm. Um, that pulled that out of that meeting, which was really great. And someone else that said uh, in that meeting, uh, today I want to be a human being, not a human doing, which I loved. Yeah. And then Saturday morning meeting I went to, which I for the life of me, I can't recall the topic, <laughs> and I didn't take notes. But then my men's group last night was a great one because I chose, I would happen to be leaving, I chose, as I said, the topic of worry. And from that, I pulled away a lot of the things that we've already shared on today and, and a lot of the feelings of other people in, in the room who all, you know, had something to say on the topic of worry, anxiety, fear, and, and the paralysis that goes along with that. Okay, thank you. Our upcoming topics include, as Eric has been saying, we're going to talk about laughter. What are your thoughts about laughter and recovery, how laughter supports recovery, helps recovery, maybe your reactions when you came first came into a meeting and people were laughing about some of the, the horrible things that were happening in their lives and they were laughing and how did that make you feel? Also, I'm uh, going to talk with Akila about concepts six and seven. I uh, spent a little time talking about those in last week's episode. If you have thoughts about how those concepts, which are about the trustees and their responsibility, and I think the second, the seventh concept is about traditional versus legal responsibility or something. I don't remember now, and, and I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, how do those? How can you apply those in your daily life, your life in your family, your life? at work, uh, in your relationships with other people. Love to hear your thoughts on that. And uh, also, uh, put in a plug here, I was looking through my email last week for topic suggestions, and Kara had a suggestion about Al-Anon dreams. And I would love to hear about your Al-Anon dreams, your dreams of recovery, or your dreams of maybe relapse. Uh, how, what, what happened, uh, how you felt? Did you wake up in a panic as I have done sometimes from those dreams? Uh, so uh, call in. I want to hear your voice and we'll put that together into a, a multiple voices episode on Alan on Dreams. Send an email, leave a voicemail or arrange a time to talk to me, with me. We welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. And Eric, how can people join our conversation here? They can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-879. Nine five again seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. You can call any time. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecoveryshow.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of worry 
or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. You can find out everything about The Recovery Show at our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. We have notes for each episode, occasional blog, links to the music that we talk about in the episode, links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And uh, if you would like to join the conversation in a larger way, consider being a guest host by phone or other electronic communication, just as Eric is doing today. Email feedback at therecoveryshow.com if you're interested. If you One of those topics that, that we're looking forward to or a topic that is on your mind uh, and you want to participate in that, let me know, and I would love to have you as a guest. So, Eric, we have another musical selection. You want to tell us about it? Uh, you picked this one. This is a John Mayer song called The Age of Worry. I love the song. I love the lyrics. Some of the lyrics are, uh, don't be scared to walk alone. Don't be scared to like it. There's no time that you must be home. So sleep where darkness falls. You know your fight is not with them. Yours is with your time here. Dream your dreams, but don't pretend. Make friends with what you are. Give your heart and change your mind. You're allowed to do it because God knows it's been done to you and somehow you got through it. Hmm. Okay. We had some little bit of feedback this week. I've heard from a few people about uh, this recent experiment I did with using some natural sounds in place of the music uh, underneath the opening of the show uh, and in between the segments of the show and at the end. And uh, as we heard from Sarah earlier, she enjoyed it. Uh, a couple other people were not so happy. Well, one person was didn't like it at all. And one person was like, where's the music? I really like the music. Uh, and so it was an experiment. I think that if I do another episode like I did uh, the Father's Day episode where I was walking outside while I was recording, um, that I will obviously have to keep the natural sounds in, in that recording. But uh, for this episode and, and you know going forward uh, for most of the future episodes, uh, the music is back. Uh, so thank you for your feedback. And uh, if, you, if you really loved the birds and, and want them back, we'll bring them back occasionally. And if you really hated the birds, well, enjoy their absence today. Thank you. Uh, got a really short email from Roger who says, I totally agree with the caller on the latest podcast that this should qualify as a meeting. And also um, got one from Eric um, who says, I'm wondering how to more effectively spread the word about your podcast. I've heard you mention to not share it during a meeting. I've also heard recently a comment suggesting the show be officially recognized as an actual meeting. I use phone bridge meetings often, sometimes several times a day, as do many others, and believe there are many, many on these calls. Some have well in excess of 100 participants. Phonemeetings.org, that may benefit from your service. Appreciate your thoughts. And I'm still thinking about this idea. Um, um, there would be some benefit in that, hey, now this is a meeting, and you can say, hey, there's this, there's this online podcast meeting that you can listen to and you can mention it uh, in inside the context of your Al-Anon meetings. Um, and on the other side, as I think um, the person who originally suggested it said, there would be some, it would put some more constraints on what we talk about here. And sometimes I like to bring in uh, people whose experience may be outside of Al-Anon to bring in um, resources that 
I or others have found that have helped that are not uh, LNI conference approved literature and, and being an actual meeting would uh, sort of constrain us from doing that. And so, uh, and, and the other thing is that if it's, if it's as a meeting, then it probably needs to be at more or less a specific time with some way for people who wanted to join in. I don't know. I'm still thinking about these things. So um, love to hear further thoughts on that, uh, that idea. Um, and let's see. Fran left a share and a question on the website. She writes, I recently asked a woman if she would be my sponsor, to which she agreed. At her first meeting, she explained how she conducts her meetings and how she works the steps with her sponsees. She's been in al about 20 years. Among other things, she explained she does not take phone calls or texts from her sponsees between meetings with her. She feels a sponsee can work things out on their own, and she isn't a therapist. It sounded harsh, but I respected her boundaries and decided to give it a try. Three weeks later, at our second meeting, she asked a couple of questions about me and problems that we are having in the community where we live. Without knowing much about me or the details of either situation, she began to cross-examine me with the sharp edge of an accomplished trial attorney. For 30 minutes, she grilled me, making judgmental and harsh statements. Among other things, she told me, you have to be instigating these problems. What in your history are you bringing which is causing these people to single you out? Why are you the victim? Do you think anyone would bully me? I'm on my HOA board, and your story doesn't make any sense. After she berated me for almost half an hour, she snapped, using her officious and offensive tone of voice, This isn't going anywhere. Let's start reading. I simply shook my head in utter disbelief, gathered my wallet phone, and what little self-confidence I managed to hold on to and left. As I walked away, she slammed out these words, Good luck finding a sponsor. In Hope for Today, page 42, February 11th, there's a wonderfully written account of one person's experience with their sponsor. It is 180 degrees out from my very limited and detrimental experience. Realizing Al-Anon is a self-paced and member-based program, I still find myself asking one question. Where does one turn when another member does them harm? And, uh, yeah, that I, I have to say, friend, that's not my experience with sponsorship, uh, either as a sponsor or as a sponsee. I sometimes ask my sponsee questions to help them find or see what might be their part in a situation, but um, not in an aggressive way, which is what it sounds like was happening here. Um, and I think, you know, you made the decision to, that this person is not the sponsor for you. And I think that sounds like it was the right decision for you. Uh, and I, I hope it doesn't discourage you from uh, finding another person who has uh, a, a gentler approach uh, with you. Uh, Eric, thoughts on this, Eric? On um, generally the, Topic of sponsorship, I, you know, I started with, in my case, uh, four years ago, in the room, which has now become my home group. I think my original temporary sponsor was someone that basically took pity on me. <laughs> he handed me his business card after the meeting because I was a basket case. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was fine, uh, but I I think I realized pretty quickly that he wasn't exactly the right mix for me. He was a dual program guy. But I moved. I was okay in moving forward and finding someone else, and and um, settled. I think the third uh, person I've asked who's been my sponsor now for about three years, uh, and I think it's in part of learning and uh, growth that we come to realize, you know, kind of what works for us and how to identify it and make a decision uh, that's healthy. And be be okay with uh, changing our minds if it's not. That's what I got out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, th- thanks. And uh, and Fran, just 
don't give up. Um, and I hope you will find somebody who, uh, who works for you. Uh, I got a phone call, uh, voicemail from a woman uh, who's in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and looking for support in the CODA program, the Codependence Anonymous program. Maybe a sponsor. Um, sounded like she could be willing to do that by phone. And she's reaching out for somebody to, uh, for help to, the, to this community. Um, so if, if you are in CODA and uh, a woman uh, and willing to, uh, to talk to her, uh, contact me and I can, I can put you in touch. And you know, Spencer, how to really determine whether uh, you're codependent, right? How's that? Well, you know, just before you die, someone else's life flashes before you die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I have heard that one. <laughs> I think I told it to you. Uh, Save that yep. for the future episode. Yeah. I think okay. I heard it heard it before, and it's still funny. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, laughter. <laughs> laughter is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. They run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Alice, Michelle, Eric, and Finn did. And, you know, no donation is too small. Uh, send me a dollar, I'll be grateful. Send me a hundred dollars, I'll be grateful. Nobody sent me a hundred dollars, okay? Just saying. Um, I'm not really asking for it. Uh, we've also put together a list of recovery-related books. Click the books link on the webpage and to find them. And if you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra. It helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support. In whatever form you give it, maybe recommending the show to your friends or just listening, we are here for you. The final song selection for this episode is The Remedy by Jason Mraz. And you can listen to that again at therecoveryshow.com slash 119. The chorus is just, the chorus is perfect. This is, I, I won't worry my life away. I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't worry my life away. And it's a nice upbeat song. Check it out. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.